Welcome to Brain Hijack. It's your host, Lucy, Michelle, and Max. On today's episode, we'll be talking about how trauma affects memory. Some of today's topics might be sensitive for some listeners. If you need a break, just hit that pause button. We'll still be here. To those of you listening, what comes to mind when you think of trauma and memory? According to the APA, trauma is an emotional response to a terrible event like an accident, a natural disaster, or even a global pandemic. Memory is the ability to recall past information. Many studies have shown that trauma can affect the accuracy and reliability of memory. Michelle, I know that you were looking at a specific type of memory called intrusive memories. Can you tell us a little more about that? Of course. According to the American Counseling Association, intrusive memories are sudden flashbacks that intrude in one's present activities. They often appear after one has experienced trauma and can cause a lot of distress. One of the most common reasons why intrusive memories form is that the trauma has been associated with random stimuli such as the sound of a clock or a specific color that one encountered during the traumatic event. One study published in 2017 tested this idea of stimuli association as the researchers showed their participants a violent film clip and added sound stimulus to the video. They later found out that the stimulus did work as participants reported intrusive memories whenever they heard the sound. The researchers also focused on the treatment for intrusive memories called memory integration and conducted therapy sessions on participants. While they did not find memory integration to be effective, that could be due to the limited amount of sessions they've conducted. Studies like this on intrusive memories and therapies can not only help people develop a better understanding about PTSD and support PTSD patients, but also provide a direction for future studies on PTSD treatments. Wow, thank you for that information, Michelle. Let's see, isn't it also right that trauma can affect young children? You are indeed correct, Max. In a recent correlational study with 65 children, ages 0 to 15, 38 of them were observed over a two-year period to see how trauma would affect their memory. And how would that work? Well, researchers would observe visual, verbal, and recognition cues and test the children's general memory score at different time intervals of 3, 12, and 24 months post-traumatic brain injury. Hmm. I never heard of those before. What did the study find? Although the general memory score showed rather variable results, researchers concluded that individuals who suffered from severe childhood traumatic brain injury did have significant memory impairment. They also found that children show the greatest improvement during the first year of recovery. Studies such as these are important to see the effects that traumatic brain injury can have on children and emphasize the necessity of seeking proper treatment for children so that they can efficiently recover. Thank you, Witsi. Children represent a large group that can be exposed to trauma, but so can smaller groups, right, Max? You're absolutely right, Michelle. In a recent observational study published in the Plus One Science Journal labeled Associations Between Memory Loss and Trauma in U.S. Asylum Seekers, researchers found that asylees with depression or PTSD had roughly 300% higher odds of developing memory loss symptoms, such as persistent short-term memory loss in daily activities, or even partial or complete memory loss of the traumatic event. 
Understanding the science behind trauma and memory loss is really important because it could inform immigration judges how to better assess asylum claims and help Congress craft more compassionate immigration law, which is incredibly crucial as the country faces 1.4 million active asylum cases. This is great information, everyone. Now, could y'all tell me a little bit more about why these studies are important? Well, because they provide guidance on how to identify forms of trauma and deal with them, especially in trauma-intensive situations like the pandemic we're in right now. In fact, there are some great tech talks and op-eds that discuss how we can be intentional about our experiences. The Trauma Resource Center is also another great source to use. Well, that's all we have for today, folks. We hope you learned something. Make sure to check out our Spotify and YouTube channel, Brain Hijack. The 500th subscriber will be featured in a future episode. Don't miss out. We'll see you on the next episode of Brain 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 Hijack. Hello and welcome to our podcast, Foodie Dreams. My name is Clayton Ketcher and I'm here along with Will Butts and Stone Walker. And in this podcast, we're going to discuss the effects of various diets and eating habits on sleep, cognition, and dreaming. First, we will go into detail about how specific diets affect cognitive and mental performance in individuals before supplementing it with how certain foods can affect a person's dreaming. And we'll wrap up our talk with a discussion about whether dietary supplements can act as a substitute for food in the content of dreams and quality of sleep. Now, at first, we have Will discussing if a specific style of diet will have effects on bodily functions other than weight loss, including sleep and cognition. When looking at how food affects dreams and other brain functions, it is important to see if specific foods play different roles in affecting the brain. In a study conducted by Stella Locovitis and Rebecca Meering, the researchers looked at the role of carbohydrates on dreams, the brain, and other bodily functions. The researchers did this by implementing a ketogenic diet, a diet that consists of no carbohydrates or sugars, on a group of subjects, and using fMRI imaging on the brain and other functional tests on other organs and also asking subjects about their dreams and cognitions to conclude whether or not the carbohydrates had increased or decreased how the body functions. The researchers implemented this diet over a three-week period and at the end of the three weeks, the researchers found no significant differences in the functions of the body, concluding that carbohydrates do not play a role in brain function. This conclusion should be looked at with caution because a trial period of three weeks may not have been long enough to affect the brain and other bodily functions, and a sample size of 11 subjects was used, which may not be large enough to draw accurate conclusions off of. Now I have myself discussing the role of food in bizarre and strange dreams. In an article published in Frontiers of Psychology, scientists experimented with nearly 400 undergraduate students. Researchers tested the effects of various foods and food habits on participants' quality of sleep and the content of their dreams. These participants answer questions in a variety of different surveys about topics such as sleep quality, eating habits, diet, and dream characteristics. Through these responses, the researchers formed a control group, and then they looked at how eating late at night affected these participants' responses in the studies. From these results, the researchers were able to conclude that participants who practice good wellness habits generally had more vivid dreams by a statistically significant margin, and those who did not practice good wellness habits generally have more disturbing or bizarre dreams. Now, the public can take these results and determine what general behaviors will lead to different kinds of dreams if they are interested in having some control over the type of their dreams. And finally, we have Stone discussing supplements and their role in sleep. 
What I actually found pretty interesting was the possible effect of dietary supplements on sleep. Um, they're designed to act like food, even though they obviously aren't, so I wondered if that would translate into sleep as well. Um, so I found this article that looked at 13 studies that all examined the potential effects of dietary supplements on sleep, and seven of them fell under the subjective category, meaning that they use some sort of index or questionnaire to evaluate sleep, or in one case, just a sleep diary. Um, one study used only objective measures, specifically polysomnography and electroencephalography, which are both used to measure parametrics in the brain during sleep. Uh, and five studies used a combination of both. So the results were pretty much all over the place. Uh, there were studies that saw no significant improvement um, and studies that showed significant improvements for both the subjective and the measurable parts of the experiments. Uh, this may be because a lot of the experiments or a lot of the supplements uh, being used were at least partially placebo-based. Um, but even in the case of actual vitamins like vitamin B or B6 or multivitamins, it's hard to find a trend. So essentially, we just need to do more research to get a more definitive answer. All right, that wraps up our discussion. We thank you so much for listening to our podcast, and please subscribe to our YouTube, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at DreamVoice. And we'll be hosting a live event before the Super Bowl this February. So please come check us out on TV live before the national anthem. Thank you so much, and enjoy your day, night, or wherever you are. What's up, y'all? It's your girl, Oriana here with another episode of Let's Talk About It, sponsored by our very generous partners, Dr. Nina G and Columbia University. Thanks for tuning in with us once again. In this episode, we will touch on a very relevant and intriguing topic, something that every human feels and experiences. Pain. Terrible, terrible pain. Some very special guests, Dr. Oseni and Smith, will be joining me. It's going to be a very interesting show, so stay tuned for the whole thing. Now, let's hear from Dr. Smith. So let's get into the sciency definition. According to the International Association for the Study of Pain, pain is an unpleasant sensorial or emotive experience associated with potential or actual tissue damage. Resource one in the show notes. Now, this definition gives us something to work with, but it leaves a lot of questions on the table. For example, how is pain experienced and processed in our brains? Do we feel different kinds of pain equally? And does emotional pain count? To understand the mechanisms of pain, let's look at a study done by the University of Montreal. This study seeks to tackle some of those questions by exposing its subjects to different forms of sensory stimulation, including painful heat and non-painful vibrations. Specifically, the researchers were trying to understand whether or not there was just one quote-unquote pain center in the brain, or, as the researchers predicted, neurological processing of pain is distributed between many regions. The researchers gathered up a group of young men and hooked them up to a PET scanner, which could measure blood flow to different regions of the brain. The researchers then exposed them to different sensations. As predicted, no one region was solely active when the subjects were exposed to pain. Instead, many regions of the cerebral cortex, as well as other parts of the brain, lit up under the machine, indicating that the brain processes pain laterally. While this gives us a lot of information about of pain at the macroscopic level, it tells us nothing about pain at the microscopic level. For that, see resource 2 in the show notes. What's more, it doesn't tell us that all pain is the same. For more, let's talk to o- Dr. Osini. Thanks for having me, guys. 
Okay, so we all have experienced physical pain in some way, shape, or form, but physical pain isn't the only type of pain that exists. As you all already know, we also experience emotional pain. One manifestation of this emotional pain is the pain we feel after being rejected. All of us in some way have undergone physical pain and social rejection, and you're lying if you say you, hadn't, you haven't experienced these. But how similar are these experiences? Both experiences hurt, but how alike is the pain in both feelings? A joint study between the University of Michigan, Columbia University, UC Boulder, and the New York State Psychiatric Institute sought to answer this question. They wanted to test if social rejection activated the same regions in the brain that are activated during physical pain. They tested this hypothesis by recruiting 40 individuals who felt intensely rejected after having recently gone through an unwanted breakup with their partners. The experimenters used functional magnetic resonance imaging to monitor the individual's brain as they performed two counterbalance tasks. One task induced social rejection by making the participant view a headshot of their ex-partner, which made them think about their rejection experience. The other task induced physical pain, where the participants experienced painful heat through a thermode on their left forearm. As expected, the individuals were distressed during the ex-partner trials and the hot trials. But how similar is the distress between these two tasks? In other words, did the emotional pain and social rejection from the ex-partner trials activate the same regions in the brain as the physical pain from the hot trials? Let's see what the results say. The fMRI scans found that the areas of the brain that were active during the feelings of physical pain, specifically the anterior insula, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, and the thalamus, were, were also activated during the feeling of social rejection. See resource three of the show notes for more. These results give new meaning to the idea that rejection hurts. Rejection and physical pain literally activate the same parts of the brain. So basically, getting rejected really does hurt. Crazy, right? Quote, increases in painful feelings motivate organisms to avoid dangerous stimuli, whereas decreases in painful feelings reward an orga organism for moving towards safety, end quote. Jeff McDonald and Mark Leary theorized that evolutionarily, physical pain made the most sense as a basis for social safety. Humans are naturally social creatures, so much that we can barely survive without each other. By enforcing the punishment of physical pain when being so rejected socially, our ancestors, and now us, learned that social rejection could lead us to death, causing us to pursue it further and further. They conclude that because social exclusion presents this such immediate and deadly threat, there's no reason that social exclusion should not involve the same processes as deadly physical threats. This physical slash emotional reaction to rejection from the most desired relationships or groups is what McDonald and Leary call quote, social pain. So there you have it. Next time you burn your hand on a stove or get that quote, we should talk about it text from your SO, remember that your brain is doing what it's supposed to. We know that doesn't really help you with your pain, but at least you understand it a little bit more. And be sure to tune in next time to Let's Talk About It, where we'll be discussing love. As always, like, subscribe, and tell your friends about us. Hey everyone, I'm in so much trouble for this exam tomorrow. I barely know what's going on in class. Me too. But we have 16 hours. We could pull an all-nighter. Wait, you really think it would be smarter to stay up all night cramming than it would be to study for half that time and get a solid 8 hours of sleep? Do you know what sleep deprivation does to your brain? By the end of this lunch conversation, maybe we can convince you that the smartest decision is to get some rest. All audio recording and music provided in this podcast are sponsored by the label The Flow. Follow The Flow of Music on Instagram to watch the creative process behind this podcast. We've all been there before, pulling an all-nighter to study for our exam the next day. We often hear adults say the best way you could do to prepare for an exam is having a good night's sleep.
Have you ever wondered why? I can already imagine the long night, constant yawning, eyes closing, body ache, but I've never thought about how a lack of sleep might affect me during the exam. It has to do with how sleep affects your memory. According to a scientific article published in 2016, sleep deprivation increases formation of false memory. Sleep-deprived adolescents were more likely than well-rested individuals to include misleading information during memory retrieval. Does that mean I'm more likely to make mistakes using memory without sleep? Yeah, exactly. So without you knowing, while you're pulling an all-nighter to do your last review, the lack of sleep will negatively affect your memory recall. And it doesn't stop there, Suman. Scientists have even studied our various types of decisions themselves and how sleep can unbalance the kinds of decisions you make. People can make multiple kinds of decisions? Certainly. There's a group of scientists from Peking University who studied two kinds of decisions, those you make with your end goals in mind and those you make instinctively based on habits. Their research can be found in the article, Sleep Deprivation Promotes Habitual Control Over Goal-Directed Control. Does sleep really impact the amount of habitual and goal-directed behavior? Absolutely, bro. They found that a lack of sleep makes us more reliant on our habitual decisions and less reliant on goal-directed decisions. That means that when you get a physics question, you might solve the question correctly based on a lot of practice, but you'll completely forget the unit conversion because they asked for the velocity in miles per hour instead of meters per second. They even found that the part of the brain involved in goal-based decisions, the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, as scientists call it, activates less when you sleep. Now let's add another factor into the equation. You're going into your FROSI midterm, and you're experiencing both sleep deprivation and mental health issues, such as depression. How does a lack of sleep impact your performance now? While taking the test, you may struggle to recall information from the lectures that you knew well the night before. This idea was expressed by scientists in 2016 when an article by the name of The Relationship Between Sleep Complaints, Depression, and execu Executive Functions on Older Adults was published. Scientists examined the primary functions and skills of the brain and the effects that a lack of sleep combined with depressive symptoms have on those functions. Wait, so will having sleep deprivation and depression have even more extreme effects? In fact, when trying to take this test while sleep deprived and depressed, your memory will be significantly worse. Additionally, you begin to find it difficult to write your answers down in a quick and efficient manner, especially as time starts running out. As we can see, the combination of sleep deprivation and mental health issues cause the main functions of the brain to be severely impacted in a negative way. In any case, you'll have a bigger problem on your hands. Even if you memorize the textbook, it's going to be really hard to concentrate when you're sleep deprived. In 2021, the Journal of Sleep Research published an article called Altered Frontal Connectivity After Sleep Deprivation Predicts Sustained Attentional Impairment. Uh, what does that mean? Basically, the parts of the brain that help you pay attention during a long period of time aren't going to be able to work well when you're running on no sleep. So you can be sitting there with all the answers somewhere in your head, but it'll be really hard to focus on writing a timed essay about the Iliad when your brain is struggling through a fog of exhaustion. So how much sleep do I need in one night? Seven to nine hours of solid sleep every night can help you reach a state known as restful wakefulness when your brain can maintain sustained attention, so you'll be ready to tackle any question you have to answer. At least 34% of the country gets less than that amount. So, after this discussion, what are your plans for tonight? I think I'll choose to sleep before my exams in the future. What changed your mind? Well, lack of sleep can create false memories, so I'm more likely to remember the lecture notes wrong without enough sleep. The kinds of choices I make can also be harmed by my sleep. I'd rather make conscious, thought-provoked decisions than use my gut. Also, the main functions of the brain become impaired, so I'll struggle to recall all of the information I thought I knew, and also have a hard time writing down all my answers quickly. Not to mention your attention span will also be a lot shorter, so you won't be able to focus on all the important facts you need during a two-hour exam. Thank you for listening. If you sleep less than seven hours of sleep a night, sleep for eight hours a night for a week and report your thoughts in our blog comment section and see the experiences of other people. 
Make sure to check out our sponsor proper and use code FROSI2021 to get 0% off your order. Next of melatonin supplements for the best sleep of your life. Hi everyone and welcome to Did I Do That? False Memories and Motivated Reasoning. In an increasingly polarized and tribal political landscape, it is important to us to understand the science behind our opinions and our memories and what exactly goes into those things. Something that we think would be an important piece in solving this mystery is finding out how false memories are implanted. Firstly, we need to define associative inference, which is the ability of the brain to mistakenly associate related or incorrect elements together. This stems from associative learning, which suggests that the brain links with these related elements when trying to learn new things. An example of this would be being asked 8 times 4, but responding with the answer to 8 times 3, another multiple of 8, so it's related. A recent study by scientists at Harvard University involved participants being asked to learn partially overlapping events with different people and a shared object with unique minor details in both. At the end, there were higher rates of false memories, meaning participants mixing up unique details in each event, after they had successfully associated these events with each other. This is because being made to recall the relationship between two similar events gets the details mixed up, resulting in memory errors. This flexibility of episodic memory and the mechanism of associative inference can sometimes result in memory distortions, such as confusion between imagined and actual events, which could explain how false memories, such as the ones Isabel is about to describe, are formed. Hey everyone, whether you are aware of it or not, we all experience biases every day. Biases are simply showing inclination or prejudice towards one thing over another. They aren't necessarily harmful, but can often manifest themselves in harmful ways. These biases show themselves the most extremely in the world of politics. Oh, yes, I know, politics suck. And many people feel this way, especially with how divisive politics have gotten in recent years. Social media has exasperated these differences in a unique way that was not seen before technology. New York Times did a podcast in 2020 to talk about how this has occurred and its negative effects down the rabbit hole. For example, when you watch a YouTube video, there's an algorithm in place that suggests a video from the same viewpoint as the one you just watched. This method isolates people and creates ignorance on both sides very easily. This ignorance shows itself in the creation of false memories that support people's political opinions. There was a study in 2013 titled False Memories of Fabricated Political Events, in which they showed participants news clips of events that happened. However, they also included two events that did not happen, President Obama shaking hands with the President of Iran and President Bush on vacation during a natural disaster. Participants that identified as Republicans were more likely to falsely claim that they remembered Obama shaking hands with the President of Iran. On the other side, participants that identified as Democrats were more likely to remember falsely that Bush went on vacation during the hurricane. These results point to the fact that our political biases can be so divisive we actually remember events that did not happen. It is important that we keep this in mind when engaging with any social media or news outlet to check our own biases. A 2017 International Society of Political Psychology study by Flynn, Nyhan, and Reifler tried to understand the origins of misperceptions and unsupported beliefs, specifically in politics. They synthesized different work across the field and came to the conclusion that political misperceptions are typically rooted in directionally motivated reasoning, such that corrective information doesn't necessarily let people correct their views to coincide with said information. And they went a bit deeper of trying to identify the primary offenders for shaping the misperceptions of the public at large. But for the purposes of this conversation, their work is relevant because it points to how rigid our internal processors can be. We may think that we are guided by an objective analysis of the facts, 
but as is often the case, we seem to instead rationalize what we wish to be true. They reference an interesting study over from the University of Chicago by Hopkins, Sides, and Citrin, no date, which shows that correcting misperceptions about the size of immigration populations does not increase support for immigration or even change people's attitudes about policy regarding it. According to the authors, these results suggest that political misperceptions may sometimes be a consequence of directional preferences rather than the cause, a cause of issue or candidate opinions. So, to sum it all up, our brains make memories through sometimes rough associations of what we know to be true, which can be helpful. But we are more likely to remem misremember things that confirm our biases, and when coming to conclusions, we are often at the whim of our predispositions. Don't forget to donate to us on Patreon, tagline memory, and more importantly, next time you rush to a conclusion about something, ask yourself, did the facts lead me here? Or did I already know what I thought before I stopped and listened? Thank you for joining us today. We hope you had ha have as much fun as we did, and we hope to see you next time. Thank you. Welcome to Battle of the Brains, the podcast where we discover what makes us each unique and what brings us all together. As usual, I'm your host, Glynis O'Mara, and before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you all about a giveaway we are hosting that I'm really excited about. Within the next week, tag us on Insta and Twitter at the underscore Brainiacs with a fun fact about brains to be entered into our raffle. The winner will get a free Brainiacs tote bag and a shout out on our next show. I'm so excited to hear what you all come up with, so don't miss out. Uh, now, today we've got a great episode in store for you. Whether you just don't get why your roommate is staying up all night on a physics P set, or you think it's impossible to read Jane Austen without falling asleep, most of us categorize ourselves into a STEM or humanities world. But are these differences something we're born with? Or is, are these divides something we've completely made up? To answer these questions, we've brought in two remarkable Columbia University students to discuss the differences between STEM and humanities brains. On the STEM side, we have Luke Shra. Luke, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Hey, I'm Luke, and I'm a prospective computer science major. Thanks for joining us, Luke. Uh, and representing the humanities, we have Ella Wickham. Ella, can you introduce yourself? Hello, I am Ella, and I'm thinking about double majoring in film and media studies and poli-sci, so more of the artsy side of things. Okay, uh, Ella, thank you so much for joining us. Our first question is for you. Are there any differences between STEM and humanities brains, and can you tell us what they are? Okay, well, according to a 2014 study done at Tohoku University in Japan, there is a difference in the gray matter and white matter volumes in the brain structures of STEM and humanities students. Would you mind explaining to our listeners what gray and white matter are? Of course. Well, gray matter is responsible for processing information in the brain, while white matter serves as a channel of communication between those gray matter regions. Gray matter also helps us control our movements, memories, and emotions. But now back to the study itself. After researchers took MRI images of the brains of their STEM and humanities student subjects, it was revealed that a greater volume of gray matter, primarily in the frontopolar area and medial prefrontal cortex, was present in STEM students. This structural characteristic could be associated with lower empathizing skills, but a higher perception of the spatial relationships of objects. Conversely, MRI imaging revealed significantly higher regional white matter volume in the right hippocampus of humanities students. This larger presence of white matter in the right hippocampus could also be associated with weaker spatial recognition abilities. Fascinating. Thank you, Ella. Uh, but what I want to know is if these structural differences are actually changing the way we act. Luke, can you tell us about that? 
Yeah, I actually know a lot about the behavioral impacts of humanities and STEM brain structures. I think that when we generally think about STEM students, we like to think about math equations and object visualization. Well, actually, there is a term to describe those thought processes, and that's called mental rotation. It's one of the core differentiators between how STEM students differ from humanities students. Mo Hosman and Hernstein's study, and this is a long title, Gender Stereotypes and Incremental Beliefs in STEM and Non-STEM Students in Three Countries, Relationships in Performance and Cognitive Tasks, actually showed greater mental rotational performance in STEM students over humanities students. Specifically, the study tested subjects' ability to draw different 3D shapes and manipulate them. All right, well, that's some great information about what STEM students are better at. But what about humanities students? Well, I'm glad you asked, Glynis. Humanities students generally tend to have higher reading comprehension skills and empathizing abilities. They also have higher ambiguity tolerance. Whoa, what is ambiguity tolerance? It's just how comfortable you are with vague or confusing concepts. Basically, a humanities student can listen to Taylor Swift's latest breakup anthem and enjoy the lyrics, but a STEM student might be more inclined to want to know which ex she's singing about. But they both like Taylor Swift, right? Sure, sure. Anyways, basically, STEM students don't just like logical reasoning. Their brains are wired for it, and humanities students, well, they're really good at writing, speaking, and being creative. That's really fascinating. Uh, well, that's all we have for you today, folks. But before we go, we have a special promotion for all of our listeners. We've divided up our Brainiacs merch store into STEM and humanities items. So make sure to show which side you're on and grab some merch that fits your mind. Thank you all for listening. And don't forget to tag us at the underscore Brainiacs to be entered into our giveaway. What is biased memory? Why are memories different from person to person? Let's find out from this podcast what biased memories are and its relationship to PTSD and depression. Welcome, Anne and Kaylee. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Before we start, we would like to provide a warning to our listeners. We'll be discussing topics relating to anxiety and depression throughout this episode. If these topics are triggering to you, please feel free to skip this podcast. Let's first begin with defining some of the basic words that we'll be discussing throughout this session. What is PTSD? PTSD, commonly known as post-traumatic stress disorder, is a disorder in which a person has difficulty recovering after experiencing or witnessing a scarring event. Symptoms may include disturbing nightmares, severe anxiety, and uncontrollable thoughts and flashbacks. This disorder affects many people today, especially amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. In a study done by Biazza and colleagues in 2020 on healthcare workers aged 18 to 65 with no history of PTSD, the overall rate was shown to be around 40% due to the pandemic. This increase could be detrimental to the total amount of trauma-induced memory bias as seen in the world today. Memory bias, defined as that which either enhances or impairs recall of memory, has been a subject of study in neurology for years, but has only recently been linked to PTSD. Although we are unaware of any studies linking COVID-19 PTSD to memory bias, as this is all very recent, we can assume there is a link as various other studies have established one with other PTSD subjects. In the research, memory bias and its association with memory function in women with post-traumatic stress disorder done by Mariko Ito and her colleagues. They explored a total of 46 women with PTSD and had 68 women as a control in matters of memory bias. These patients were tested with negative words and positive words in the matter of experience and patients' memories, and as a result, patients with PTSD showed significantly greater negative bias scores and poor memory functions compared to the control room. 
From this, we can also assume that PTSD can affect memory into certain sites, causing the contrast between memories of people that experienced the same event. On a similar note, depression, often referred to as major depressive disorder or clinical depression, is a mood disorder consisting of constant sadness and feeling of both physical and mental isolation. Depression often stems from PTSD and affects the memory bias in a similar way. As it happens, Statistica reports that 41% of U.S. college students have any type of depression, and 22% have a severe case of the disorder. And as a side note, I would expect that number to rise during the winter because the 4 p.m. sunset is killing me, my work ethic, and the plants in my room, which I am very mad about, by the way. A study conducted in 2020 and published in the Journal of Affective Disorders proved, through the purposeful questioning of groups with a spectrum of mental disorders and none at all, that negative memory bias can serve as a marker for depression and its severity. The conclusion of the study stated that negative memory bias can be seen as an effect of depression, but also increases the severity of depression in the case of those with pre-existing mental disorders, meaning that those with, say, PTSD are at a much higher risk of developing severe negative memory bias as a result of a severe case of depression. In a 2002 study by Panovic and colleagues, 39 crime victims suffering from various levels of PTSD and 39 age-sex matched controls underwent a color-word association task using emotional trigger words, implicit memory tests, and explicit memory tests, where positive, neutral, and trauma-related words, half-consciously associated and half-not, were shown. Subjects in the test group were able to recall both trauma-related words and positive words significantly more than neutral words. Specifically, explicit memory bias was found in the test group with consciously associated trauma-related words, but no bias was found with the words that the subjects did not consciously connect with their trauma. To inform those who are situated in a similar issue, what are the possible ways to cope with PTSD and depression? We are in no way experts, but generally, severe cases of PTSD and depression decrease in intensity when patients prioritize self-care and receive sufficient support from their surrounding environment, which we acknowledge are not easy things to accomplish. Talking to mental health professionals to find healthy ways to cope is a great place to seek insight on what works for you. These professionals provide applicable treatment, which may include trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, family therapy, medication, or EMDR. Not sure where to start? Check out the mental illness helplines in our show notes. And thanks very much for your participation in this podcast. Thank Thank you for for having having us. us. Don't hesitate to explore the mental health helplines linked and reach out if you or someone you know is struggling. Have an amazing day. You got this.